Note A of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. Note A. Liberalism. I have been asked to explain more fully what it is I mean by liberalism, because merely to call it the anti-dogmatic principle is to tell very little about it. An explanation is the more necessary, because such good Catholics and distinguished writers as Count Montalembert and Father Lacordaire use the word in a favorable sense and claim to be liberals themselves. The only singularity, says the former of the two, in describing his friend, was his liberalism. By a phenomenon at that time unheard of, this convert, this seminarist, this confessor of nuns, was just as stubborn a liberal as in the days when he was a student and a barrister. I do not believe that it is possible for me to differ in my important matters from two men whom I so highly admire. In their general line of thought and conduct I enthusiastically concur and consider them to be before their age. And it would be strange indeed if it did not read with a special interest in M. de Montalembert's beautiful volume of the unselfish aims, the thwarted projects, the unrequited toils, the grand and tender resignation of La Cordere. If I hesitate to adopt their language about liberalism, I impute the necessity of such hesitation to some differences between us in the use of words or in the circumstances of country, and thus I reconcile myself to remaining faithful to my own conception of it, though I cannot have their voices to give force to mine. Speaking then in my own way, I proceed to explain what I meant as a Protestant by liberalism, and to do so in connection with the circumstances under which that system of opinion came before me at Oxford. If I might presume to contrast Lacordaire and myself, I should say that we had been both of us inconsistent. He a Catholic in calling himself a liberal, I a Protestant in being an anti-liberal, and moreover, that the cause of this inconsistency had been in both cases one and the same. That is, we were both of us such good conservatives as to take up with what we happened to find established in our respective countries at the time when we came into active life. Toryism was the creed of Oxford. He inherited and made the best of the French Revolution. When in the beginning of the present century, not very long before my own time, after many years of moral and intellectual declension, the University of Oxford woke up to a sense of its duties and began to reform itself, the first instruments of this change, to whose zeal and courage we all owe so much, were naturally thrown together for mutual support against the numerous obstacles which lay in their path, and soon stood out in relief from the body of residents who, though many of them men of talent themselves, cared little for the object which the other had at heart. These reformers, as they may be called, were for some years members of scarcely more than three or four colleges, and their own college, as being under their direct influence, of course, had the benefit of those stricter views of discipline and teaching which they themselves were urging on the university. They had, in no long time, enough of real progress in the several spheres of exertion, and enough of reputation out of doors, to warrant them in considering themselves the elite of the place, 
and it is not wonderful if they were in consequence led to look down upon the majority of colleges which had not kept pace with the reform or which had been hostile to it and when those rivalries of one man with another arose whether personal or collegiate which befall literary and scientific societies such disturbances did but tend to raise in their eyes the value which they had already set upon academical distinction and increase their zeal in pursuing it thus was formed an intellectual circle or class in the university men who felt they had a career before them as soon as the pupils whom they were forming came into public life men whom non-residents whether country parsons or preachers of the low church or coming up from time to time to the old place would look at partly with admiration partly with suspicion as being an honour indeed to oxford but withal exposed to the temptation of ambitious views and to the spiritual evils signified in what is called the pride of reason nor was this imputation altogether unjust for as they were following out the proper idea of a university of course they suffered more or less from the moral malady incident to such a pursuit the very object of such great institutions lies in the cultivation of the mind and the spread of knowledge if this object as all human objects has its dangers at all times much more would these exist in the case of men who were engaged in a work of reformation and had the opportunity of measuring themselves not only with those who were their equals in intellect but with the many who were below them in this select circle or class of men in various colleges the direct instruments and the choice fruit of real university reform we see the rudiments of the liberal party whenever men are able to act at all there is the chance of extreme and intemperate action and therefore when there is exercise of mind there is the chance of wayward or mistaken exercise liberty of thought is in itself a good but it gives an opening to false liberty now by liberalism i mean false liberty of thought or the exercise of thought upon matters in which from the constitution of the human mind thought cannot be brought to any successful issue and therefore is out of place among such matters are first principles of whatever kind and of these the most sacred and momentous are especially to be reckoned the truth of revelation liberalism then is the mistake of subjecting to human judgment those revealed doctrines which are in their nature beyond and independent of it and of claiming to determine on extrinsic grounds the truth and value of propositions which rest for their reception simply on the external authority of the divine word now certainly the party of whom i have been speaking taken as a whole were of a character of mind out of which liberalism might easily grow up as in fact it did certainly they breathed around an influence which made men of religious seriousness shrink into themselves but while i say as much as this i have no intention whatever of implying that the talent of the university in the years before and after eighteen twenty was liberal in its theology in the sense in which the bulk of the educated class through the country are liberal now i would not for the world be supposed to detract from the christian earnestness and the activity in religious works above the average of men of many of the persons in question they would have protested against their being supposed to place reason before faith or knowledge before devotion 
yet i do consider that they unconsciously encourage and successfully introduced into oxford a license of opinion which went far beyond them in their day they did little more than take credit to themselves for enlightened views largeness of mind liberality of sentiment without drawing the line between what was just and what was inadmissible in speculation and without seeing the tendency of their own principle and engrossing as they did the mental energy of the university they met for a time with no effectual hindrance to the spread of their influence except what indeed at the moment was most effectual but not of an intellectual character the thoroughgoing toryism and traditionary church of englandism of the great body of the colleges and convocation now and then a man of note appeared in the pulpit or lecture-rooms of the university who was a worthy representative of the more religious and devout anglicans these belonged chiefly to the high church party for the party called evangelical never has been able to breathe freely an atmosphere at oxford and at no time has been conspicuous as a party for talent or learning but of the old high churchmen several exerted some sort of anti-liberal influence in the place at least from time to time and that influence of an intellectual nature among these especially may be mentioned mr john miller of worcester college who preached the bampton lecture in the year eighteen seventeen but as far as i know he who turned the tide and brought the talent of the university round to the side of the old theology and against what was familiarly called march of mind was mr keebley in and from mr keebley the mental activity of oxford took that contrary direction which issued in what was called tractarianism keebley was young in years when he became a university celebrity and younger in mind he had a purity and simplicity of a child he had few sympathies with the intellectual party who sincerely welcomed him as a brilliant specimen of young oxford he instinctively shut up before literary display and pomp and donnishness of manner faults which always will beset academical notabilities he did not respond to their advances his collision with them if it may be so called was thus described by harold Froday in his own way poor keebley he used gravely to say he was asked to join the aristocracy of talent but he soon found his level he went into the country but his instinct serves to prove that men need not in the event lose that influence which is rightly theirs because they happen to be thwarted in the use of the channels natural and proper to its exercise he did not lose his place in the minds of men because he was out of their sight keebley was a man who guided himself and formed his judgments not by process of reason by inquiry or by argument but to use the word in a broad sense by authority conscience is an authority the bible is an authority such is the church such is antiquity such are the words of the wise such are hereditary lessons such are ethical truths such are historical memories such are legal saws and state maxims such are proverbs such are sentiments presages and prepossessions it seemed to me as if he ever felt happier when he could speak or act under some such primary or external sanction and could use argument mainly as a means of recommending or explaining what had claims on his reception prior to proof he even felt a tenderness 
i think in spite of bacon for the idols of the tribe and the den of the market and the theatre what he hated instinctively was heresy insubordination resistance to things established claims of independence disloyalty innovation a critical censorious spirit and such was the main principle of the school which in the course of years was formed around him nor is it easy to set limits to its influence in its day for a multitude of men who did not profess its teaching or accept its peculiar doctrines were willing nevertheless or found it to their purpose to act in company with it indeed for a time it was practically the champion and advocate of the political doctrines of the great clerical interest through the country who found in mr keble and his friends an intellectual as well as moral support to their cause which they looked for in vain elsewhere his weak point in their eyes was his consistency for he carried his love of authority and old times so far as to be more than gentle towards the catholic religion with which the toryism of oxford and of the church of england had no sympathy accordingly if my memory be correct he never could get himself to throw his heart into the opposition made to catholic emancipation strongly as he revolted from the politics and the instruments by means of which that emancipation was won i fancy he would have had no difficulty in accepting dr johnson's saying about the first whig and it grieved and offended him that the via prima salutis should be open to the catholic body from the whig quarter in spite of his reverence for the old religion i conceive that on the whole he would rather have kept its professors beyond the pale of the constitution with the tories than admit them on the principle of the whigs moreover if the revolution of sixteen eighty eight was too lax in principle for him and his friends much less as is very plain could they endure to subscribe to the revolutionary doctrines of seventeen seventy six and seventeen eighty nine which they felt to be absolutely and entirely out of keeping with theological truth the old tory or conservative party in oxford had in it no principle or power of development and that from its very nature and constitution it was otherwise with the liberals they represented a new idea which was but gradually learning to recognize itself to ascertain its characteristics and external relations and to exert an influence upon the university the party grew all the time that i was in oxford even in numbers certainly in breadth and definiteness of doctrine and in power and what was a far higher consideration by the accession of dr arnold's pupils it was invested with an elevation of character which claimed the respect even of its opponents on the other hand in proportion as it became more earnest and less self-applauding it became more free-spoken and members of it might be found who from the mere circumstances of remaining firm to their original professions would in the judgment of the world as to their public acts seemed to have left it for the conservative camp thus neither in its component parts nor in its policy was it the same in eighteen thirty two eighteen thirty six and eighteen forty one as it was in eighteen forty five these last remarks will serve to throw light upon a matter personal to myself which i have introduced into my narrative and to which attention has been pointedly called now that my volume is coming to a second edition 
it has been strongly urged upon me to reconsider the following passages which occur in it the men who had driven me from oxford were distinctly the liberals it was they who had opened the attack upon tract ninety page two o three and i found no fault with the liberals they had beaten me in a fair field page two fourteen i am very unwilling to seem ungracious or to cause pain in any quarter still i am sorry to say i cannot modify these statements it is surely a matter of historical fact that i left oxford upon the university proceeding in eighteen forty one and in those proceedings whether we look to the heads of house or the resident masters the leaders if intellect and influence make men such were members of the liberal party those who did not lead concurred or acquiesced in them i may say felt a satisfaction i do not recollect any liberal who was on my side on that occasion excepting the liberal no other party as a party acted against me i am not complaining of them i deserve nothing else at their hands they could not undo in eighteen forty five even had they wished it and there is no proof they did what they had done in eighteen forty one in eighteen forty five when i had already given up the contest for four years and my part of it had passed into the hands of others then some of those who were prominent against me in eighteen forty one feeling what they had not felt in eighteen forty one the danger of driving a number of my followers to rome and joined by younger friends who had come into university importance since eighteen forty one and felt kindly towards me adopted a course more consistent with their principles and proceeded to shield from the zeal of the hebdomadal board not me but professedly all parties through the country tractarians evangelicals liberals in general who had to subscribe to the anglican formularies on the ground that those formularies rigidly taken were on some point or other a difficulty to all parties alike however besides the historical fact i can bear witness to my own feelings at the time and my feelings was this that those who in eighteen forty one had considered it to be a duty to act against me had then done their worst what was it to me what they were doing in opposition to the new test proposed by the hebdomadal board i owed them no work for their trouble i took no interest at all in february eighteen forty five in the proceedings of the heads of the houses and of the convocation i felt myself dead as regard my relations to the anglican church my leaving it was all but a matter of time i believe i did not even thank my real friends the two proctors who in convocation stopped by their veto the condemnation of tract ninety nor did i make any acknowledgment to mr rogers nor to mr james mosley nor as i think to mr hussey for their pamphlets in my behalf my frame of mind is best described by the sentiment of the passage in horace which at the time i was fond of quoting as expressing my view of the relations that existed between the vice-chancellor and myself pentu rector thebarum quidme perfere paticu indignum cogas arimam bona nepe pecus rem lectus argentum tolus licet in manesis et compedibus sevo te sub custode tenebo namely the thirty-nine articles ipse deus simo atque volam me solvet opinor ac sentit moria mors ultima lina rerum est 
I conclude this notice of liberalism in Oxford and the party which was antagonistic to it with some propositions in detail, which, as a member of the latter, and together with the high church, I earnestly denounce and abjured. 1. No religious tenet is important unless reason shows it to be so. Therefore, for example, the doctrine of the Athanasian Creed is not to be insisted on unless it tends to convert the soul, and the doctrine of the Atonement is to be insisted on if it does convert the soul. 2. No one can believe what he does not understand. Therefore, for example, there are no mysteries in true religion. 3. No theological doctrine is anything more than an opinion which happens to be held by bodies of men. Therefore, for example, no creed as such is necessary for salvation. 4. It is dishonest in a man to make an act of faith in what he has not had brought home to him by actual proof. Therefore, for example, the mass of men ought not absolutely to believe in the divine authority of the Bible. 5. It is immoral in a man to believe more than he can spontaneously receive as being congenial to his moral and mental nature. Therefore, for example, a given individual is not bound to believe in eternal punishment. 6. No revealed doctrines or precepts may reasonably stand in the way of scientific conclusions. Therefore, for example, political economy may reverse our Lord's declarations about poverty and riches or a system of ethics may teach that the highest condition of body is ordinarily essential to the highest state of mind. 7. Christianity is necessarily modified by the growth of civilization and the exigenesis of times. Therefore, for example, the Catholic priesthood, though necessary in the Middle Ages, may be superseded now. 8. There is a system of religion more simply true than Christianity as it has ever been received. Therefore, for example, we may advance that Christianity is the corn of wheat, which has been dead for 1800 years, but at length will bear fruit, and that Mahometanism is the manly religion, and existing Christianity the womanish. 9. There is a right of private judgment, that is, there is no existing authority on earth competent to interfere with the liberty of individuals in reasoning and judging for themselves about the Bible and its contents, as they severally please. Therefore, for example, religious establishments requiring subscriptions are anti-Christian. 10. There are rights of conscience such that everyone may lawfully advance a claim to profess and teach what is false and wrong in matters religious, social, and moral, provided that to his private conscience it seems absolutely true and right. Therefore, for example, individuals have a right to preach and practice fornication and polygamy. 11. There is no such thing as national estate conscience. Therefore, for example, no judgments can fall upon a sinful or infidel nation. 12. The civil power has no positive duty, in a normal state of things, to maintain religious truth. Therefore, for example, blasphemy and Sabbath-breaking are not rightly punishable by law. 13. Utility and expedience are the measure of political duty. Therefore, for example, no punishment may be enacted on the ground that God commands it. For example, on the text, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. 14. 
the civil power may dispose of church property without sacrilege therefore for example henry the eighth committed no sin in his spoliations fifteen the civil power has the right of ecclesiastical jurisdiction and administration therefore for example parliament may impose articles of faith on the church or suppress dioceses sixteen it is lawful to rise in arms against legitimate princes therefore for example the puritans of the seventeenth century and the french in the eighteenth were justifiable in their rebellion and revolution respectively seventeen the people are the legitimate source of power therefore for example universal suffrage is among the natural rights of man eighteen virtue is the child of knowledge and vice of ignorance therefore for example education periodical literature railroad travelling ventilation drainage and the arts of life when fully carried out serve to make a population moral and happy all of these propositions and many others too were familiar to me thirty years ago as in the number of the tenets of liberalism and while i gave in to none of them except number twelve and perhaps number eleven and partly number one before i began to publish so afterwards i wrote against most of them in some part or other of my anglican works if it is necessary to refer to a work not simply my own but of the tractarian school which contains a similar protest i should name the lyra apostolica this volume which by accident has been left unnoticed except incidentally in my narrative was collected together from the pages of the british magazine in which its contents originally appeared and published in a separate form immediately after Harald Froude's death in 1836. Its signatures. Readers note the following are Greek letters. A, ba, ga, da, eh, kas. Denotes respectively as authors Mr. Bowden, Mr. Harald Froude, Mr. Keebley, Mr. Newman, Mr. Robert Wilberforce, and Mr. Isaac Williams. There is one poem on liberalism beginning, Ye cannot have the gospel of God's grace, which bears out the account of liberalism as above given, and another upon the age to come, defining from its own point of view the position and prospects of liberalism. I need hardly say that the above note is mainly historical. How far the Liberal Party of 1830-1840 really held the above 18 theses which I attribute to them, and how far and in what sense I should oppose those theses now, could scarcely be explained without a separate dissertation. End of note A. To Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman.